0: I'm Al Filreis, and this is Poem Talk at the Writer's House, where I have the pleasure of convening three friends in the world of poetry and poetics to collaborate on a close but not too close reading of some poems. We'll talk, maybe even disagree a bit, and perhaps open up the verse to a few new possibilities, and we hope gain for some poems that interest us, some new readers and listeners. And I say listeners because Poem Talk poems are available in recordings made by the poets themselves as part of our Penn Sound Archive writing.upenn.edu slash pensound. Today, I'm joined here in Philadelphia, in person, in person, at the Kelly Writer's House in our Arts Café by Bethany Swan, a doctoral student here at Penn, who focuses on Asian American studies and contemporary poetry and poetics, who has been a Kundiman Fellow and a regional co-chair of Kundiman Northeast, and who is author of the chapbook Diadem Me, published by Meal Press. And by Henry Steinberg, who has done work as a letterpress artisan and in web design development, a longtime Philadelphian born and raised, and a dear, dear friend of the Kelly Writers House community going back to his days as a student when he called this very house his home away from home. (laughs) And by Caroline Bergvall, the award-winning poet and sound artist who works internationally across various art forms and languages, old, new, quasi-translated, and convergent, I added the convergent in there, but I think it's accurate, whose books include Fig, Metal English, Drift, and Allison Sings, among others, and whose text and sound works include Via, Half Villa, Ambient Fish, and many others, and whose installations include Say Parsley and Who Is Here, wrapping up as of this conversation, having traveled from London during a stay as Kelly Writers House fellow Caroline thank you for this big trip
1: oh thank you so been glad that you joined us wonderful to be here
0: yeah. yeah so it's a big pond to cross over when you've been used to zoom
1: that's true it's it's good to regain some of the habit though yeah it is traveling a, it it's is lovely a good habit.
0: yeah so it's great and bethany first time on poem talk
2: it is yes i'm so excited to be here
0: <laughs> does it take a little bit of nerve to do this probably not right you're relaxed
2: I am much more of a on the page poet than a kind of like stage presence. So okay. this is new for me, but right. I'm excited. All right, I like. I now, like you've I like already you're
0: already a hit. This is good. Thank you so much. And Henry, we just remembered before we started recording that this is your second poem talk, but the first one was in the dim, dim, dark days of <laughs> undergraduates. So. Yeah, it was.
3: It was nearly nearly a decade ago poem talk's been going on a long time. Because it was at least, it was at the earliest, or most recent, 2013, it could have been even 2012. It was
0: early, and it was about Charles Reznikoff, and we didn't even have a studio then. No. We were in my office, according. So anyway, it's great to have you back. It's good to see you. It's wonderful to be back. four of us have gathered here today to talk about four poems that we've selected, From Suwako Nakayasu's book titled Some Girls Walk Into the Country They Are From, published in 2020 by Wave Books. The four poems we will discuss this is for those following along who have a copy of the book. They are first, Girl A's Peanuts and Girl D's Mouthful. That's one poem. The second one is Gun. The third is called Girl in a Field of Flowers. And the fourth is Ten Girls in a bag of potato chips. And this last poem, Ten Girls, is also presented in the book in a French translation by Geneve Chao and a Japanese translation by Miwako Ozawa. Our recordings were made by Suwako, Nakayasu just for poem talk, for which we're very grateful. Thank you, Suwako And we are also pleased to have recordings of French and Japanese translations by Chow and Ozawa. So here now are Nakayasu, first, four poems, Chao, the translation into French, and Ozawa into Japanese, performing poems from some girls' walk into the country they are from.
4: Girl A's Peanuts and Girl D's Mouthful Girl A on the train with peanuts, the expectant fullness of Girl D's mouth, growing distance of the floor. A few bystanders are scraped by peanut shell, believing themselves innocent are willing to let peanut scars be peanut scars how good of them girl a soon bereft of all peanuts girl d too close to the brink and when it happens it will not only rain peanuts but also nails, bones, hair clippings, gavels, hammers, and broken tongue talkers will all come shooting out of her mouth and fall down on everyone, on all of us, inside and outside and throughout the train and the rain and the girls and across the dead oceans, training up for the hard rain, for the new weather, for the new weather. Gun. Girl H says, let's turn ourselves into bullets and load up this gun. Let's nod and pretend you never said that. Come on, that way we can choose where we go and who we hit, and whose flesh we tear apart with impunity and disregard. We can reverse all the injustice by recalibrating who lives and who dies. We'll disrupt the systems through which they determine who is guilty. By turning ourselves into bullets, we'll finally rid ourselves of the baggage of being female. We'll be free. We'll be powerful. We'll burn it all to the ground. You mean like when they firebomb the whole city of Tokyo? No, like when you finish a board game and you start all over. We burn it all down and start again from nothing. We'll get arrested. Bullets don't get arrested. We'll be taken into the labs and analyzed. They will trace our DNA, then rape our mothers. Bullets don't have DNA. Bullets don't have mothers. We'll feel so guilty. Not by the time we are bullets. Bullets don't feel. But what if I do? What if I wuss out and jam the barrel? You don't have control over that. You said we would have control. No, I didn't. We would have control. Just then, a water gun drops down from the ceiling. While the original argument carries on, the rest of the girls go bury their heads in the water. Girl in a field of flowers. Class, what do you see in this painting? Flowers, in the foreground or background? Both, what else? A girl, what else? Clothing, what else? An expanse of space, what else? The field of flowers flattening in the distance. Why is the field of flowers flattening? Because the painting uses one point perspective. But what flattens them? The limits of the painter's ability to paint in extreme detail. Are the flowers in the distance the only flowers that have been flattened? Yes. No. Then what? Here are some flattened flowers in the foreground. Where? Here. Not far from the clothing. What kind of clothing is that? I don't know. What else? It's crumpled. What else? I don't know. What else? It's not being worn. What do you mean? It looks like it has been taken off the body. Of whom? The girl. What makes you say that? Because the girl is naked. Why is the girl naked? Because the painting was made by a man. Are you sure? Yes. Are you sure the girl is naked? Yes. Why? Because her clothing is over there. Where? Over there. Where? Over here on the ground. Where? Over here on the ground where some of the flowers have been flattened. How do you know those are flowers? Because they are the same colors as the flowers that have not been flattened. Ten girls in a bag of potato chips fight over who gets which chip as if there were no more than 10 chips in the bag. There are more than 10 chips in the bag. Girl A assumes that the bigger, the rounder, the better. Girl G believes that the beautiful ones should choose first. Girl C makes a bid for lung capacity. Girl J sees that the sharp edges of the less round, more imperfect chip might come in handy one day. She remains quiet. Girl I says no. Only Girl H takes note of the fact that the crispness of the chips is proof positive that the container, I mean the bag, that they reside in is airtight. Only girl H has a feeling for her true position within the global economy and food supply chain and how it affects the likely outcome of their collective fate. She has trouble deciding whether to speak, slap, or remain silent.
5: girls dans un paquet de chips, se battent pour le droit de choisir son chip, comme s'il n'y avait que 10 chips dans le paquet. Il y a plus de 10 chips dans le paquet. Fille A présuppose que plus c'est gros, plus c'est rond, mieux c'est. Fille G croit que les plus belles devraient avoir le doigt de choisir en premier. Fille C tente d'avancer la règle de la capacité pulmonaire totale. Fille J voit que les chips en forme de lame pourraient un jour être utiles. Elle reste silencieuse. Fille I refuse. Seule fille H note que tout reste si croustillant que le récipient, je veux dire le sachet, Où elle demeure doit être fermée. Celle qui h est un sens de sa vraie situation, dont l'économie globale et la chaîne logistique alimentaire, et de comment cela va changer le sort à toutes. Elle a du mal à décider entre parler, gifler ou rester
6: muette.『『『『『『『『『『『『『『『『『『『『『『『『『『『『『『『『『『『『『『『『『『『『『『『『『『『『『『『『『『『『『『『『『『『『『『『『『『『『『『『『『『『『『『『『『『『まるて袋の中には中には10。袋の中には 配給 the Bethany, pick a poem. You get to pick a poem. Which should we start with?
2: Uh that's so hard. Um, I would love to start with Girl in a Field of Flowers on um, page 112.
0: Fantastic. Okay. Henry and Caroline, first impressions of that poem? Just say anything. Henry first.
3: Um, arresting. <laughs> yeah. Why? The cadence of the questions of this presumed sort of instructor, the questions that aren't questions, but actually like declarations and that sort of call and response um, as we gradually sort of begin to see the how this painting expands or this this picture this place um, I, I found it really just astonishing
0: fantastic Caroline what's your
1: yeah I, I agree for me the, the question of what else what else what else what else that you have throughout sort of Becomes its own sort of sense of wanting to take the poem and perhaps the viewing of the painting further afield, away from even. Further afield, as it were. Yeah, exactly (laughs) right. Exactly right. So that would be, yeah.
0: So, Bethany, why'd you pick it?
2: I'm really interested in the relationship between the instructor and the class and what it says about the kind of power dynamic as it shifts by the end of the poem. Where the students are clearly pointing out something the instructor themselves has not necessarily noticed, and I'm really also interested in that word flattening that keeps recurring when it's re- referring to either flowers or clothing or the the body of the woman in the painting. And the
3: one the one point perspective itself, absolutely. Is yeah, even like the space, the distance, the way that the. The the students at one point shift from saying there to here, mm-hmm. and and bring there to here in this way that, I, like to your point about that uh, power dynamic, feels like almost the the moment of subversion of like sort of overtaking the the instructor. I went looking for this painting. Mm-hmm. It didn't quite. F-
0: Fine. I thought uh, this has got to be Wyeth or something like that, but it's not. <laughs> <laughs> I, found an, I found one for Did you. Did you find
1: Well, I don't know, but I immediately thought of Manet's Déjeuner sur l'herbe.
0: Mm. Because,
1: and then I went looking are for it. Are there some clothes? And there are, the- well, certainly because you have the two women that are naked, and then you have the men lying around the grass, but also mm-hmm. there are flowers. To the oh. side, and I was mm. trying to see whether they were crumpled, but I just thought that because they are naked, and the the, clothes is, you know, the clothing is crumpled, and it's such an iconic um, painting, you know, that's been used and reused also to be looking at naked women and mm-hmm. then dressed men, right. and what is the role mm-hmm. of the women mm-hmm. there? Mm-hmm. That it felt for me quite. I don't know, very close in any, in, any, in any case for me on reading And that this would make one.
0: sense because if it's a high school or a freshman art history class yeah. or something, that would be a painting that Absolutely. they would look at. So what's the – how uh, – let's each try to characterize the pedagogy here. I'll start and then we'll go to Bethany. It's faux Socratic. <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Socratic is hard enough because it leads yeah. you. Yeah. But pretend – because it actually does it's not a very wise teacher the The teacher is alleging that they know more than the view the novice viewers seers. Uh, I'll stop there, Bethany, what kind of pedagogy is this?
2: I really appreciate what Henry just shared about the way that the students are challenging the one point perspective and bringing that sort of dimensionality back into the view or the frame for the viewers. And it seems that the painting, despite what the students are pointing out, the limitations of the male painter, um, it seems that those limitations are not inhibiting the students from recognizing the scope, the dimensionality um, nor should they prevent us as the readers or listeners from that.
3: That's great. Henry, really pedagogy? I, its I mean, it's very didactic. It's mm. it's call and response. its It seems as though the the instructor assumes that these responses should be given by rote, and that's what makes that turn surprising. That and yet they're supposed no to be liberatory.
0: It's right. it's like, that's why I said for pho- pho- socratic It's like, I am going to liberate you from seeing what mm. you usually see, and yeah. you better do it. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Caroline?
1: I think a lot of it has been said already, but perhaps something to point out is in relation to that teacher who talks about the girl is naked mm. um, or doesn't correct because if you think about paintings, it's not they're not naked, they're nudes. You know, there's mm, often that mm-hmm. dimension, mm-hmm. and I was really struck by that. So suddenly it's not necessarily a very knowledgeable art history teacher either because they don't make that distinction
3: well and, and to that point I mean I, I was thinking a lot about how this almost feels like a like a parody or a a staging of like how the male gaze is taught mm. to students and that point that that Caroline just made about uh, the difference between nude and, nudes and naked bodies mm-hmm. and one is is sort of like aesthetic and Beautiful, and the other is factual and and like more um, vulnerable. Mm. If, if there were a right wing art historian, I don't know if there are any,
0: but <laughs> they would take they would take exception to the idea that um, the question is asked, why is the girl naked, and the answer seems rote because the painting was made by a man now either they know that because they have the fact Mm. or they are just like they were taught that this is one point perspective which is not the language they would use unless they were force fed it so now they are force fed seemingly set would say would say the right winger they're just regurgitating a liberal art history that is itself tyrannical Mm. does that make any sense so I want to provoke I want to just offer a provocation and see how you all respond to this. Um it strikes me as art history pedagogy is actually uncomfortably similar to investigating a crime scene. This is like something has happened bad here and it's almost prosecutorial. It's almost a leading leading the witness kind of thing. Mm. Is that too too did I go too far and is it creepy like that i'm implying it's kind of creepy
1: it's
2: uh, oh sorry oh, go yeah. ahead i was just I, gonna say there's there's certainly evidence <laughs> to support that the evidence of the uh, flattening the flowers yes. yeah oh that's great i
1: agree that the vocabulary itself <laughs> right. is yeah. quite violent in a way with this yeah yeah that's yeah. that's great i wanted to say that the vocabulary is so imprecise throughout the poem mm. yes. so i don't even get a sense of art history if i want to be completely honest because suddenly Uh, The only thing that leads me to it is the word class. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm thinking this is a class of some kind, but there's nothing here that is a little bit of that informational language that you would have in a class where they would indicate... I don't know, they would give you a sense of trying to contextualize it a little bit. Even the word flattened, why is it because it's flattened? Well, why? Because the clothes are crumpled? That is not very precise, you know, that yeah. is not, mm-hmm. it's, it's hardly descriptive, you know?
3: So. Mm, you're totally right, and it, it feels very much like there's this presumption of knowledge that, like, excludes that informational mm. language, that it, that it is a, I guess, to to speak to Al's point about the prosecutorial nature, that it's a... um what's the word that I'm looking for, that it is a, uh, like a questioning, that these people are being brought in to give interrogation. evidence of interrogation. It's more interrogative, yeah. which is even more fascinating that it uses only periods for punctuation. Absolutely. And isn't interrogation yes. a word,
0: a term that carries over from teaching and close reading together? Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> right? Don't we interrogate everything? Yeah. I mean, where Sawako. The creator of the speaker stands is a question I'm just going to leave open for a little while and turn to Bethany to pick another poem we can talk about.
2: (laughs) Okay. I would love to talk about "Gun" on 115. Oh, wow.
0: Okay. I kind of want to turn to Caroline to hear her thoughts on this, because I know this is powerful to you.
1: Yes. Well, first of all, when you indicated that this is a poem that Sawako wrote when she came back from Japan... Uh, and was sort of shocked to find herself again in a country which has the, the biggest, um, guns per, you know, in, in, the population in the world. And therefore also is sort of finding herself confronting that, the emotion that is connected to that constant potential violence. And perhaps the uh, one thing I want to say here is it's a weird, there's a triumphalism that's immediately will be free, will be powerful. And at the same time, there's that very weird brain, brainwashing tone as well throughout so i found that connection so interesting and so powerful especially when you when you look at the stories of gun violence at the moment and you know police brutality with with guns and etc so
0: and it's 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 overtly fallacious we'll get arrested if we kill people bullets don't get arrested so that's kind of there's a a, a, an anti-gun rights activist thing here Uh, bullets don't get arrested people get arrested and so forth it's kind of a perversion of the nra line um so yes you're right suwako made it clear in her notes that this was written upon relocation to the u.s from a country presumably japan with an extremely low rate of ownership so knowing that henry you know girls and guns with this bravado it's so disconcerting
3: or maybe darkly comic yeah, I mean I I found it to be extremely powerful and you know, I was talking to Bethany briefly before the show like f- funny there's so much humor in these poems um that feels rooted in the the experience of being a woman of being a girl and to like see like these presumably like girl has the connotation of of youth that like these like younger people being imaginative and their imagination when it's like aimed towards liberation jumps to violence that like the only way that they can conceive of or not even they that girl h specifically Mm -hmm. can conceive of like sort of transcending her position is like let's become guns and be bullets like we if we are the ones that are violence then we cannot be held to account for that violence
0: might it start with a nod to Dickinson? My life had stood a loaded gun, where mm. the that yeah. that sort of hard to identify woman speaker. Yeah, you can't tell whether she's the gun or the victim or the shooter. Or, I mean, I don't think that carries on but that's an interesting that's complication yeah. yeah well and Absolutely. then
3: and this instead of having the sort of like classical like dickinsonian like ellipticalness is extremely direct it's let's become guns it's hortatory mm. and it's yeah. kind of marvel will be powerful girl power <laughs> exactly. we got guns yeah. we're gonna take bethany what are you thinking
2: I'm thinking, I guess, that um, in the act of turning themselves into guns, they are not only leaving behind the baggage, but... Um, it's referred to the baggage of being female, but also a matriarchal lineage, too. Mothers, guns don't have, or bullets don't have mothers, bullets don't have DNA. And so just what does it mean to become an object? And this there's a long-standing history in Asian American studies of the objectification of Asian women and the sort of, like, Diminutive references and exoticization of bodies, um, and so I feel like this is a manifesto that is directly taking up um, that kind of derogatory stereotype and inversing it. Um, and so I wonder, though, what it does um, for for the girls as they become weapons, as they are bullets. Um, what does it mean not to embody? Um, the body of a girl, but to be this this kind of like insensate um, object of destruction.
0: Can yeah. I, can I um, d- pause for a meta question for Absolutely. you, Bethany? So it, you mentioned what's happening in Asian American studies and thinking about the figure of the girl. And then, of course, you you also study poetry and poetics. So what's your comment overall? It's a book in which every poem mm. features these algebraically generic Girls, right? And how does that connect? And in this one explicitly, she's marking a return from Japan.
2: So I actually cheated a little. I looked at the press release from Wave Books, and they have this phenomenal um, kind of definition of the girls Mm -hmm. as, and this is the quote the girls are an unsettling diaspora of poetic form. And so <laughs> to me, to think about girls as being, as occupying this kind of almost template um, of anti-form, or how, do, how, does, how does the idea of diaspora as a scattering, how does that kind of, you know, um, disrupt what we think about as a logic in form?
0: Holy cow, mm, I'm nice so one. glad. And this is kind <laughs> of just a little... Caroline Bergvall, up your alley. So I wonder if you, if you would comment, and then Henry, on this question that Bethany just I raised. I thought that's
1: such, such a powerful and interesting comment. Um, what, what it, if I take from where you are, um, in relation to the diasporic, uh, sort of nearly non-identified, but still diasporic girl, and then you look at the girl becoming a bullet... Which then is a way of separating from context, separating from lineage, a bit Mm -hmm. like you were saying, but then the turn of it becomes that it is, it becomes a neutralized, that's why I said brainwashing initially, Mm -hmm. it becomes, you become the tool of the state. Mm-hmm. You know, you sort of, access, so it's a total brainwashing. You accept a, r- a role that you thought you were fighting, you know, initially, and actually you become the bullet that the state wants you to be, which mm. is basically the role of the terrorist, you know, for example, or another extremist position. But you, So th- there is a blanking out of context and of all the things that mar- might mark them out differently. Yeah, so. Like
0: a Manchurian candidate turned into Absolutely a bullet. Absolutely right. Oh, yeah, freaky exactly and right. scary. Well, exactly.
3: the, the way that the state... Like, disciplines us into policing ourselves to be its own tool, right? Like, there's that sort of Foucauldian mm. idea.
0: One more question about this one, uh, more of a reference or a footnote, and then we'll, and then Bethany will take us to, to a third poem <laughs> since you're on a roll. In the middle of this poem, which marks a reverse course return to a country full of guns from Japan to the US, where the relationship, The modern relationship dates back to 1945, obviously. Um, This moment where who has the guns and who has the firepower and who is big and mighty and can destroy the most is a big question. Um, And in the middle of this thing, there is the historical marker reference of the firebombing of the city of Tokyo, which was committed by the U.S. preceding the dropping of the atomic bomb any of you, why is this marker put into this poem which is otherwise somewhat strategically bereft of a specific reference like that? Oh, boy, I just asked a hard question.
1: Is, is, do you wanna, is it... I don't know. I'm trying to answer back with a question. Is it that this gun is actually becomes this intense political machine of the American gun and it's nearly a historical backtracking to what happened with Japan? So it nearly is... Um, yeah, it's, it's re-ac- re-acknowledging the, that event as she comes back in she feels the gun again directed against perhaps even her yeah. as a, you know, herself as she comes in but perhaps also further back to Tokyo It's to- a
0: t- historically tragic yeah. irony for the, the girl if the girl, yes, girl H speaking here yeah. will be free, okay, liberation at the point of a gun
3: will be powerful and then we will burn it all to the ground Well, something that I thought was interesting is that there's a rejection of that historical continuity. She's like, no, like when you finish Mm. a board game. It's like this exchange. No, it's not like that. It's like when you finish a board game. it's it's instead of like absorbing or continuing, Mm. like it almost feels like it's describing a break from historical trauma that's been replaced by the gun. Like the gun is the gun is the gun. It exists of itself and in itself. It's a game. It's it's something a game from else. the start.
0: Let's turn ourselves and then let's not let's not and say
3: we did, which is a kid's trope. Well, right? it's almost the way that like the the logic of sort of the sort of national response to trauma melts away until it just becomes this lingering violence that isn't about the thing that happened. But it still persists and exists and continues. Mm.
2: But there's and that, also, I think, a danger in comparing the comparison of a board game to the firebombing of Tokyo. Oh, because totally. there's this idea that in making something that is truly atrocious and truly the United States was complicit in. Over a hundred thousand Japanese civilian deaths in that. Yeah. Um and so the idea that, oh no, it's just like a game or we start over again. Um, I feel like that's that's intended to be there. Like I think I think Al's like right in pointing out that there's this very like particular market specificity in that historical reference um that Caroline is saying, like, it's picked up again. In this uh, motif of the gun.
3: Oh yeah, I mean, I, I didn't, I didn't mean to say that it wasn't <laughs> yeah, yeah, important. I, I more meant that Sawako is saying something interesting about how children receive like that mm-hmm. kind of historical trauma and how mm-hmm. how they are brainwashed by sort of like statehood and how how that interacts with like their desires and their their impulses. Because you're totally right. I mean, like this feels very much like an indictment of what the u.s did
2: absolutely mm-hmm.
1: also i feel perhaps girl i don't see it as young girls necessarily or they Fair. can be especially because of the way a lot of it is sexualized throughout the mm. throughout the book so i see them i don't see them aged but i see them as a sort of i might it's a female uh, entity mm-hmm. i don't quite know the age but girl is also a term that's used you know by queer women so you know mm-hmm. it's sort of uh, i don 't feel the, the youthness in the same way, but the youth is manifested by the chips the all the objects we have throughout the book that mm. you know that the, the type of, of of life that we seem that they seem to have always these little objects like the water gun here mm-hmm. yeah. and I really wanted to point out those last three lines because when you say again. Going back to Al's uh, argument, but here the original, while the original argument carries on, the background of what we've been talking about now, I'm wondering, the original argument for me suddenly goes back for me to the firebombing of the whole city of Tokyo. So the argument is still happening. It hasn't been digested, neither by this country nor by the other country. Final
0: final thoughts on this real quick, and then I want to let Bethany turn us to the third poem. Henry,
3: final thought on this? I think I'm just, like, re- I'm really taken by Caroline's point that, like, these, that girl doesn't have to be aged in the way that I think I've been, I've been projecting, like, an idea of, like, a school-aged child onto this notion, but expanding that definition to, like, include sort of, like, a, a femaleness that is, like, just, that, that isn't specifically youthful, I think has changed my way of reading some of these poems in a way that's really useful so
0: non-age specific femaleness yeah bethany final quick thought on this one
2: i just think that it brings to mind again the impossibility of having a just like an equilibrium between a just society and a control society and it's just inevitable violence
0: okay bethany the third poem which one do you want to do
2: okay let's do girl a's peanuts and girl d's mouth oh my goodness <laughs> i want to i want to say what i think the
0: scene is and then you can here's the scene i think is here and i could be wrong the setting is she or the speaker is traveling and they're either her girls or other girls are on the train and throwing peanuts at each other and a lot of there's a lot of uh uh, uh, collateral damage as other passengers are getting popped by peanuts and this puts her in mind of post uh, post uh, nuclear apocalypse via Bob Dylan and this is like a really interesting strategy for her as a typical strategy let's have some people playing around like girls will do and let's then imagine what would happen if they were all destroyed by us by our society Henry how did I do I think you did pretty well. So where are you? Thank you, Henry. I am the host. I have to do at least pretty well. <laughs> all right. Okay. Where um, do we go from there if that's, and is it as, is it as striking when we get to not just the peanuts that are raining down from this game on a train, but nails, bones, hair, gavels, hammers, and then other words from Bob Dylan's song, uh, hard rain's going to fall.
3: I mean, I think it's extremely striking and, and having listened to the Bob Dylan song, uh, just before this, while I was reading the the poems, preparing for this uh it's interesting that that song is addressed to a boy is addressed to a son specifically my son, yes, it's like my son, my son, my son, and the only mm-hmm. women my darling in it, young one there's a woman who is on who's on fire and who is dead, and there is a girl who is giving him a rainbow mm-hmm. and this is i mean this is not that this is about these. These young people, these people having fun, doing something really carefree, making trouble. Yeah, a little making bit of making trouble. trouble. But I didn't even get the trouble. I got like they're like they're having, they're having this fight. intimate like fun moment, and it evokes like it, it kind of brings out this like anxiety that I think a lot of society has about young women and about femininity. That like there's like this terror ensconced in like this innocence, and. There's, like, this fear that if people, if if young girls are not cared for, they will either be the object of violence or the cause of it. Well said.
0: Bethany, Caroline?
2: I guess I'm still thinking about, um, Caroline, what you said about the girls portrayal and Gun and the way that um, there is some gender fluidity in that. And there's also this kind of question of womanhood and girlhood and then girl A and girl D. Mm-hmm. And I also wonder like what happened to the girls in between A and D, right? So what are those girls doing? Um, but this whole poem is only seven sentences. And that last sentence is such a culmination, like syntactically, of all of these apocalyptic images. Mm. Um, and so you do feel like the weight of the Dylan song and all of those clauses that are like packed um, with so many adjectives and meaning. Um, and there's a prophetic quality, I think, that carries over to this.
1: Absolutely. I, I see the, that sentence just before it all sort of tips over, the close to the brink, Mm-hmm. That, for me, strikes mm-hmm. me as that sentence that tips the whole poem over into something much more nearly mythic, you know, where the tone is full of commas, they're no longer short sentences, so commas, so it keeps going, keeps going, and that sentence grows and grows and grows and ends with the new weather after dead oceans, after broken tongue talkers, after, you know, there's a... There's a build up here of a much more yeah myth, nearly mythical epic quality if you like. Mm-hmm. The poem explodes. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. I mean
0: brink is a cold war word. Mm-hmm. Right. Right? right? Yeah, and yeah. here it's used as Caroline just said as a an aesthetic strategy. Okay, we're at the brink and now we just explode with everything. Yep. And this is Sawako in her surrealistic mode. Yep. At her best, it's also
3: Dylan in his own – he didn't do a lot of surrealism, but this is one of those. Mm-hmm. Well, and there's also yeah. this interesting traversal that happens, like, to, to Bethany's point about this sort of, like, sort of syntactic culmination of, like, you're on a train, and then you're going through these clauses in this kind of, mm-hmm. like – it sounds like a train passing by. You are mm-hmm. you are carried away with this final sentence, mm-hmm. even to the point of training up for the hard rain. You go from this place to this to – this, verb to an action. And that training could be two one of two things. You could be training to a place, or you could be training up for an end goal. You could be a soldier or you could be a a, a passenger. The idiom here,
0: mm-hmm. training up, is significant. Training up for the hard rain. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: And that that for me, because of the didn't song, it has that a post-apocalyptic mm. uh, moment and that's what the new weather yeah. is uh, and the dead oceans of course as a, if we hadn't by then if we didn't know then then you know you get it there basically and that's
0: um, the new weather
1: and that's the new weather yeah
0: that's so it's so much
2: grittier and yeah. <laughs> surreal and frightening than a rainbow, right, from the Dylan song yeah, that the, the girl is offering.
0: I think in the Dylan song that I think of it, the rainbow is a suggestion that at some point the sun will rise and, you know, a few people will have survived. And, you know, well, you, my son, you might be one of them. You know, I'll be yeah. gone, but you might be one of them. Sawako so doesn't have any such
3: false hope or real hope. No, we have, we have broken tongue talkers. We have this diaspora that comes out of this cataclysm.
0: Bethany Swan, I have to have you on every poem talk because ah. you <laughs> delivered a random order and it worked because now we're about to get probably the most difficult of the poems, Ten Girls in a Bag of Potato Chips. This is actually quite typical of many poems in the book. What the hell? Okay, Henry, I, the last time, set up the scene... This time I'm going to ask you to set up the scene if you possibly
3: can. Are there actually girls in a bag of potato chips? It seems like there are. There, there are ten girls who are fighting over the chips inside of a bag. It, that's it does it, indeed. Right? Yeah, that's that's all. We can just back it up and go home. That's all there is. And Sorry. I love. How it, <laughs> I love.
0: No, not yet. I'm enjoying this too much. I, I, I love. I mean, the bag that they reside in. So the the the, the um, commas. The, the container, comma, I mean the bag, comma, that they reside in. You would never use a that clause there unless you were being really funny. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I told you they were actually in the bag, so I'm going to separate it by commas.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so she wants to make sure that we've got the title. Is this in a bag?
3: It's amazing, yeah, right? Okay. Yeah. Well, this also feels like one of the only ones that we've yeah, read you're right. That's that where the ba- where the title is part of the poem. That's the first line. Mm. And it, it runs directly into ten girls oh, in the back. Right. Of the okay. Oh right, okay. yeah. fight over who gets the chip. Okay, good.
0: Okay, so it's silly, more more uh, peanut games, right? Um, we fight over who gets the chip, and I like the round and perfect ones, and you like the. So what more is it then, Bethany? It's more than that, right?
2: I think there's always more with Sawako. (laughs) Um, So what really fascinated me was the the way that we get to the final stanza with girl H, who is so, you know, astute and (laughs) is very, very much aware of what consumption means and her own position, her own complex position in the global supply chain (laughs) to consumption. Um, And then this last line, she has trouble deciding whether to speak, slap, or remain silent. As the final line, I feel like that gets kind of turned to us as the listeners who also have this choice, right, to speak, to act out, um, or to remain silent. And so for me, there was this kind of like tautological moment there.
0: Caroline?
1: I was looking at some, the use of comparatives, so more, no more, and then more than, and then bigger, rounder, better, or uh, more imperfect, less round, this sort of detail. I mean, why, why spend all this time on the, you know, comparing chips and, you know, so again, very much sitting with what you said about the global economy, and then also comparing beings, you know, like are you m- more round, more you know perfect, more imperfect? so I thought that use of the comparative here was really um very interesting actually,
3: well, yeah, and it, it kind of it to that point it it almost sets up this this way of like how are we defined by what we consume or in in this case. that what we consume is also that which we are consumed by. Like these are, we're trapped in the bag. And only girl H is the one who has the political consciousness of being aware of the bag. Everyone else is fighting over its contents.
0: And what is their collective fate? I mean, Mm. all the poems in this book have something directly or indirectly to say about what's going to happen to these girls.
1: I think they get eaten by the big monster at the end of the Inferno, Dante's Inferno, you know, like the the <laughs> illustration by, um oh, the very famous one, the French one, where it's basically this monstrous face with an open mouth. So I feel they're basically they get eaten by the situation of the global food supply. Mm. But oh that gosh. if you want to stay with this sort of slightly cartoony stuff and surreal that we've identified with, I just had this idea of this big, you know, Figure that is going to open the bag and eat all the girls and eat all the, as well as the the chips. So the parable is, Caroline,
0: it's, um, okay, we spend a lot of our innocent effort picking out, you know, that's the best chip and this is the kind of chip that I like and I'm going to, I want that chip. You can have that chip. But in the end, we aren't consuming, what we consume is nothing compared to our being consumed Mm. by larger systems wow, if that's it, oh my God. <laughs> well, the-
1: I mean, collective fate, the outcome, the likely phrase. outcome of the collective mm. fate, yeah. you are in a bag of chips. You can be the observer like Girl H who still has some kind of a sense of, hang on, I'm a thinking being here. Mm. Um, I, might, I, I don't want to eat a chip and I don't want to be eaten either. But she's wondering how can she get out of this predicament that she finds herself in? And she doesn't even know, should she speak? What should she do?
2: I really appreciate that. I think the conversation about the aesthetics in the second stanza, about what you're saying, the comparative nature of, you know, which girl is um, choosing the bigger, rounder chip versus um, the one that is sharper. And is that also a comparison about poetry, do you think? Is there something that is parabolic in the way that um, Sawako is... Um, sort of not necessarily (laughs) like indicting the poetry community, but is uh, pointing out the relation between poetry and aesthetics and then also consumerism and supply chains and um, institutions and, you know, neoliberalism. Is that there too or is that kind of like?
3: I I think it's absolutely there. I mean, I think that's, I I I love that point because it's very much like when people become so subsumed with the aesthetics of their politics Mm -hmm. that it's less about the actual like systems that like remain in control and remain oppressing them. It's, 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 it's no, we disagree about Mm -hmm. the utility of this chip. Mm -hmm. There are, we are fighting over, we are fighting over who gets which chip as though there are no more than 10 chips in this bag, but there are always more than 10 chips in the bag. (laughs) And, it's like g- girl H is the one who pull back and is like, "Whoa, whoa, 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 whoa! There's enough chips, but what about this bag?"
2: Right. <laughs> yeah. For the first Air time, time. <laughs> I
3: get this
0: feeling that there is a girl H. I'm not sure how H gets us to Sawako Nakayasu, but I feel like H is a cousin mm. of Sawako, or maybe it's Sawako, the mm. portrait of the mm. of the artist as a young girl H. You know, I'm feeling like Sawako is there, and I think you all are right. Sawako's so the one peeking out from the potato chip bag saying, this doesn't have to be, <laughs> oops, gulp, <laughs> yum, 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 yum. That's the dante <laughs> I just did a <laughs> Sesame Street version of Dante's monster. <laughs> the, the um, <laughs> Caroline Bergvall, you think more than anybody I know about translation and about collegial and communitarian translation This poem is one of those that was translated post facto by colleagues, one uh, translating into French and one Japanese. What's the significance of that? What does it mean? Um, you, uh, native to French, probably followed that French translation. I don't know if you have any comment on it. The floor is yours to talk about the importance of translation Great. to Sawako and Absolutely. to you.
1: In her work, uh, so important also as a translator. Uh, and so the fact that she chooses to place translation throughout the volume um as part of an, in, in equal footing uh, as the as all the pieces in English uh, that she uses French uh, as well as japanese uh so just basically goes quite openly to different um, um language sources I thought all that for me is sort of re- so representative of, of uh, Sawako's own practice anyway so for me to see that in the book was just great I was really uh very excited by it and Indeed, very excited by all the poems that I can't read.
0: This is so you. Because you're, you're in so much of your work, you're saying, look, I am not going to wait till the moment when I have a full command of this other language, I don't understand this text, that I, I am going to work with it. I'm going to try and find, hear the homonyms and the false friends, and I'm going to do what I can. That's so you. This is a little further afield than a language that you use, oh, but yeah. Old English is hard for you, and you navigate it. And that's one of the reasons this, is, this work is appealing to you? Yes,
1: absolutely. Yeah. It's very exciting. And for me, it's always about the limitation of one's own you know, languages, what we know. And so not to be able to handle or to know how to read, but to see that it's a, it's a, it's a writing uh, system, which is the Japanese. For me, that's, that is, like I said, very exciting. It shows me the limits and in fact, she uses the word limits in some in the other in the art we saw earlier. The limits of my own knowing, the limits of my own languages. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really so yeah. I'm in the middle of a book and I can't and I just have to accept that limit. Now that is very appropriate to the poems actually as well that we're looking at. Because they remain quite elusive, don't they? They have these cartoony sort of ways of writing a story, but actually there's so much we don't know. And so in a way, this is the more extreme. A representation of that. And know?
0: when we picked this one, I can't remember if it was my asking Suwako via your interest, to ask Chow and Ozawa to record because they recorded this for the first time. They hadn't done this. You know, they, they wrote it and they hadn't meant it. And she contacted them and immediately when she sent us the sound files, they were there. And that suggests what about what she's trying to achieve here? A community project, a transnational, translinguistic project.
1: Definitely. And and a sense of complicity that they are wishing to be part of. They want to take that one step further. Well, that would be my quick response to it. Uh, which might fit well with all these unidentified girl A, B, C, D, E, the alphabet of girls, you know, as well. Mm-hmm.
0: So. Yeah. Okay. Let's go around and give final thoughts. Because we could go on for a long time. There's so much more to say about these four poems and others. But what what did you come today wanting to say, but haven't had a chance to yet about any of these poems? Bethany, what's your final thought?
2: Wow, I just feel like I'm so in awe of what Sawako does. And I'm still thinking about what you just said, Al, in that these poems enact collaboration um, through translation, and what you shared, Caroline, in that they are asking people to come together, and, and also, like, what does it mean to have, like, that phrase, like, command of a language? It's so colonizing, <laughs> like, it's so awful. And so thinking about um, what language actually is, and the way that poetry has always tried to kind of um, just sort of like pierce through that idea that there is, there exists some sort of um, authoritative command of language. And so I really like thinking about the the whimsical, lighthearted, and yet the kind of like gravity um, and terror that um, Swaco invokes in this collection.
3: Fantastic. Thank you. Henry, final thought? Well, wow. Thank you, Bethany. That was like extremely well said. Um, I... Really, really love how uh, Sawako just by, by just inserting untranslated text into her work sort of invites me as a reader to think about community and like the larger sort of linguistic community as one that like should be heterogeneous, that should like embrace difference and that like just like these anonymized girls who I can't really ever truly know, I may not ever truly be able to read Japanese or to understand French, but that I can sit with those poems in a book side by side with one's written in a language that I understand and sort of have the experience of that work all the same. Mm -hmm. Um, And sort of like, I feel like it's an invitation to sit with another that you may not have a full understanding of and to, like, sit in, like, community and humor and terror. And I think it's really beautiful.
1: There's a sense of really, I have to say, with all these small stories we've been sort of going through, there is a sense of the pleasure of telling stories. There is a little bit of that... um, sort of joyous way of of uh, of uh, of the reader. Mm-hmm. You know, these are written for readers. And I have to say, I really love having heard them spoken out. For me, that made them really come through so that I thought immediately more about nearly, this is nearly small fables or, or stories, if you like. So I really enjoyed that. So it brings then it in, into a slightly different category, which is the poetics that are also about the communal that mm-hmm. you were describing. Mm-hmm. Because if they are stories that are meant to be told, then we are expecting a reader. So suddenly I realize, and perhaps with these as well, readers are invited and expected and hoped for, and all listeners in here, you know, through the form itself. You know? yeah.
0: I knew that the three of you each would be able to just say a stream of really smart and brilliant and thoughtful and sensitive things about this work. But Suwako. so we could have done this with, you know, The Charge of the Light Brigade, I think, you know, or whatever, or some Robert Frost poem. But the fact is that it was Sawako that engendered this uh, collaborative improvisational genius that the three of you have exhibited. And I'll throw myself in there too. Definitely. The four of us. So that's that's why we like poets. I Forget the poems for a second. The poets poets who can make us spend an hour... Granted, the camera's rolling and the mics are in front of us and we have to do stuff... But given that structure, it's just fascinating how Sawako engendered that. So my final thought has something to do with that. I am kind of obsessed with the failure of the Ut Pictura Poesis tradition in Girl in the Field of Flowers, the poem that's about the poem that's about a painting or the poem that's about a painting which is about poems about the painting. That whole tradition actually is said to be something of a failure here because the tradition of close looking, which is a cousin to the tradition of close reading, which is what we're doing though, gingerly, you all, it all gets thrown into this problem, which is ultimately, I think a scene of something really terrible that has happened. Something terrible happened to that girl. Why are the clothes crumpled? There's a, the, the, The grass and flowers seem to be depressed and flattened. There may have been two bodies there. There's something really, really dark that's happened there. And close reading doesn't get to it. And close looking, even led by the nose, you're not necessarily seeing it. And so I feel indicted. The very thing that we're doing, much as I congratulated us, the very thing we're doing is a... What else? What else do you see? Henry, what else do you see? Bethany, what else do you see? I'm the what else guy. So I need to back off from that when chastened by all these flattened flowers that we leave behind. We need to be slower and more, Mm. to use a favorite word of yours, we need to be slower and to maybe let the flowers stand and not flatten them. Mm. And I don't think we've done that because we picked four poems rather than one. We really would have flattened it if it was just one.
1: But what you're pointing out, which we hadn't talked about at all, is, of course, the potential for rape or sexual violence that has happened here that is I think is that's flattening. what's there. Yeah. And, yeah. and this is something that uh, we didn't point out at all in the first go-through of the poem, was that you were, very, you were pointing out flatten, flatten, flatten a lot. You could see the violence, but the fact, the way you're putting it, for me, suddenly I'm going, oh, my God, that's the darkness of that poem. Mm. And we... Sort of, a, And that's also the darkness of art history. And, and we sort of sail through that one. And yeah. so I really appreciate that you take us back there and suddenly there's that, oh, that this one is really big. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's yeah.
3: almost like yeah, and we're desensitized to images of violence every day. Yeah. Well, because we're yeah. just
0: reading a fucking painting and we're watching yeah. a teacher, which we are, maybe on our worst days, maybe on our best days, leading people to see what we've seen for 30 years. I have shown you this Manet. Is it a Manet, did you say? Yeah, it is, yeah. You know, I've well, shown I've shown this here. manet at noon it with is the is lights. It is manet for manet. sure. No, no. No, yeah. No, okay. No. okay. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I've shown you this painting. The light's out in an art history tiered classroom for 35 years, and now you will see what I see, and I'm going to lead you to it so that you feel the liberation of having come upon an art historical interpretation. And you know what? Even after 35 years, I miss the fact that a crime has been committed, and it may or may not be a narrative crime of what happened to a girl. It is the crime of having a painting that after all these years you still can't see because you've been trained to do it a certain way. Well, we like to end poem talk with a minute or two of Gathering Paradise, which is a chance for several of us, or if you're quick, all of us, <laughs> to spread wide our narrow Dickinsonian hands to gather a little something really poetically or aesthetically good to hail or commend someone or something going on in the world of art that you want to recommend. Bethany Swan, you got something?
2: Okay, so I would recommend any film film, um, by Paolo Sorrentino, who's a director who I love. And I've been watching um, The Young Pope on HBO. <laughs>
0: really? you <been laughs> um, watching The Young and
2: Pope? But well, you're not recommending that, are you? Very much enjoying it. Um, yes. So I, I'm also a divinity student, and so I love... Thinking about theology, <laughs> like um, the the kind of like tussles that Catholicism gets into, um, but I I really enjoy um, the cinematography of Paolo and the vision, and so my favorite ever film is The Great Beauty, um, and so if you've seen that, just the the juxtapositions, it is it is like cinematic poetry, so.
0: Thank you Bethany. Great recommendation. Henry top that
3: I don't think I can, but um I can hardly recommend uh, i guess a streaming show that i uh, mean my husband I've been watching recently severance on apple t v plus is this really kind of amazing and surreal uh almost sci fi but never quite like explicitly like science fiction uh about like what if you had the opportunity to uh sever your uh work life from your real life and sort of really uh in in a in like unflinchingly looks at like the existential horror that that might cause for the person who only exists at work and what it means to be responsible for creating a new consciousness without their consent it's 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 very good it's also inexplicably directed by ben stiller Inexplicably, meaning, where did he get that? Where, the, where the hell did this yeah. come from? Because it's it's darkly mm-hmm. funny, but it's also very moving.
0: Fantastic, thank you, Caroline Bergvall. I By the I... way, can I just say, okay. you are paradise. You are paradise.
1: <laughs> We're gathering <laughs> well, paradise, you. and you are paradise. Well, and well, n- enough well, said. It's been amazing to me, heaven to me. <laughs> so
0: you made I'll, a Dante reference. So uh, gathering yeah. paradise.
1: I would like to recommend a fantastic anthology, which came out, I believe in lockdown, Uh, Queen's English came out with Roof Books, edited by Q. Lee. I think Sawako Sawako has uh, a piece in there as well. Uh, It's subtitled Poetry, Philosophy, and Performativity. And it is an amazing mix of poets and thinkers, uh, cross-languages, cross-forms, cross-genres, all, you know, riffing off this idea of the Queen's English. Is it the Queen? Is it the Queen's? Is it the Queen's English, you know, and that's just the beginning of it. It's a, it's a wonderful, very dynamic anthology that I really warmly recommend.
0: And although Q is spelled K-Y-O-O, Q goes by Q, yep. the letter Q. So there's, that's a, right, queen, there you have there's a queen as exactly well.
1: Exactly. And, yep.
0: and Q is the queen of philosophy, let's face it. Well, thank you. My Gathering Paradise is, as I mentioned, Caroline Bergvall, a new book. Well, I'm going to say new, even though it's 2019, but in pandemic times, new Alison Sings, which is um, an effort by someone named Caroline, figure in the book, and Caroline sitting to my left as well, of course, to reckon with, to allow to speak, to engage, and to reinvent the wife of Bath of Chaucer. So that is all the training up for the hard rain we have time for on Poem Talk today. Poem Talk at the Writer's House is a collaboration of the Center for Programs in Contemporary Writing and the Kelly Writer's House at the University of Pennsylvania and the Poetry Foundation, poetryfoundation.org. Thanks so, so much to my guests. Bethany Swan, you are such a champ. This was a great first time. I hope you'll do it again. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and Henry Steinberg, welcome back to your second home. Thank you, it's good to be back. And the glorious, eminent Caroline Bergvall, thank you so much, Caroline. Thank you so much. And to Poem Talk's director and engineer today, Zach Cardner, and to Poem Talk's editor, the same, amazing, generous, and talented, Zach Cardner, and a shout-out to Nathan and Elizabeth Light for their ger- very generous support of Poem Talk. Next time on Poem Talk... We'll be on the road once again, this time to the beautiful Hudson River Valley on the campus of Bard College in, I think the town's called Annandale on Hudson, on the river's mid-state east bank, where we will be talking with Lainey Brown, Erica Kaufman, and Joan Ritalik, about a passage from Joan's remarkable work, The Poethical Wager. This is Al Filreis, and I hope you'll join us next month for that or another episode of Poem Talk.